0: Amen, church. It's been a good morning, has it not? <clears throat> if you will, open up your Bibles to Numbers, chapter 21, the book of Numbers. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture with you, that's totally fine. Uh, you can grab the Pew Bible. In front of you It's page 129 in your Pew Bible. 129. <clears throat> All right, so there's this story that's told of an elderly woman who asked to meet her pastor for marriage counseling. And the pastor was a bit perplexed because the woman was happily married to her husband for over 40 years. And so the pastor asked, so what seems to be the problem? And the woman replied, well, my husband has this terrible habit of biting his nails. He's been doing it for 40 years, and I can't take it anymore. And the pastor answered, listen, before you make any rash decisions, remember what the Bible says that if you ask for wisdom, if anyone lacks wisdom, if you ask God who gives generously without reproach, So he says, take a week, ask God for wisdom on the situation, and see how he responds, and then we'll meet up again next week. And so the woman agreed, and when she arrived for her next session, she was elated. She said, Pastor, I can't believe it. I finally cured my husband of biting his nails. The pastor said, wow, after all these 40 years, that's great. How did you do it? She said, well, Pastor, the Lord gave me wisdom. I just hit his teeth. Pick up on that one right there. (laughs) You know, church, we all have bad habits that are hard to break. For some, it might be smoking. For others, it might be drinking. For others, it might be procrastinating. Still, for others, it might be the bad habit of overeating or oversleeping. But whatever bad habit it may be, one thing is certain. Old habits die hard. And this was certainly true of the Israelites, who for 40 years had a bad habit of complaining. Psalm 78, verses 40 to 41 says, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again, and they provoked the Holy One of Israel. You see, in their journey to the promised land, God miraculously preserved, protected, and provided for the Israelites time and time again. We saw that as we've been in our study here in the life of Moses. However, whenever circumstances got tough, Instead of trusting in God's continued faithfulness, the Israelites complained. They complained. They complained about water. They complained about manna. They complained about quail. They complained about waiting too long. They complained about their general conditions. If you name it, they probably complained about it. In fact, it was their bad habit of complaining and disobedience that caused literally an entire generation of Israelites to die in the desert and miss the enjoyment of the promised land. In fact, it's a great reminder to us that complaining always gets in the way of God's blessing. Well, thankfully, we serve a merciful God who will never turn his back on his children, even though we might turn our backs on him. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, the Lord promised to lead his people to the promised land, and despite their infidelity toward him, it was a promise that the Lord intended to keep. However, this doesn't mean that the sinful rebellion of God's people would go without retribution. This morning, as we continue our study in the life of Moses, we're going to look at God's response to the Israelites' rebellion. And it's through our study we're going to be reminded of this important truth. The treatment for sin comes only by trusting the Savior. And so with that, let's bow our heads and pray one last time before we hop into God's word. Lord, I want to thank you again for the opportunity to open up your word, and I echo Pastor Dan's prayer. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me to your people today, that we'd all leave here closer to Jesus than when we arrived. And God, we just commit this time to you, truly and genuinely and sincerely, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've ever watched a serialized TV series, once in a while they'll do what's called a time jump. In other words, you might be watching the series unfold in sequential order, and then all of a sudden the next episode takes place like a month or even a year later, yes? Well, this morning we're going to do a little time jump in the life of Moses. See, last week we found Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and today we're going to find the Israelites on the cusp of reaching the Promised Land about 40 years later. Now, today's passage is going to pick up shortly after a chapter that's filled with unrelenting Gloom. You see, in Numbers chapter 20, Moses' sister Miriam died. Moses' right-hand man Aaron died. And Moses committed a sin against the Lord, which resulted in his own banishment from the promised land. You see, after all these years of leading God's people, even Moses missed out on God's blessing. It was a tough chapter. Well, in, in Numbers 21, it marks this turning point in the lives of God's people. You see, it opens with the Israelites in conflict with the Canaanites, who were the people currently in possession of the Promised Land. And so a battle ensued, and the Israelites, they came out victorious, destroying the people, their towns, and their king. And so this marked the beginning of what would eventually be a complete conquest of the Promised Land. However, it would not take long for the spirit of victory to devolve into a spirit of bitterness and complaint. And so let's begin by reading the whole passage, and then we'll break it down. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. For Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people, so that many of the people died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Prayed to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Crazy story, and we're going to break it down in a few minutes here. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the Rock of Ages. So the Rock of Ages is, you know, just a reference to the Lord, right? He said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the Rock of Ages. In other words, Spurgeon learned that stormy circumstances always pushed him closer to the Lord, and that's where he really wanted to be. So he was thankful for it. The Israelites, on the other hand, had a much more difficult time learning this lesson. As already mentioned, for 40 years, God had proven himself to be faithful, and at this point, for them to complain would be scandalous. I mean, this is 40 years of God's faithfulness. But that's exactly what they did. They complained. And so the Israelites needed to learn the hard way that not only does God punish rebellion, but he also is gracious to provide the remedy to it. And so found within today's passage are going to be four factors that led the Israelites back to God. Let's begin by looking at the first, the problem for the Israelites. Let's look at the problem. Again, we're going back to verse 4. So from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient along the way. What's going on here? Well, a few years ago, my uncle was traveling home after a long trip, and when he was in midair on his way from Chicago to the Avoca airport, a snowstorm began hammering the Northeast. And so as the plane started making its descent into Avoca, the pilot came on the intercom and he announced, due to bad weather, the pathway to their destination was blocked and they needed to divert their flight to Philadelphia. Like, literally, my uncle recalled being in the plane, making their descent, seeing his hometown from the plane, and it was like one of those, nope, just kidding, and he had to go all the way to Philadelphia, rent a car, and drive home. And just imagine how frustrating it would have been to be so close to home, yet so far away. Well, in some ways, this is where we find the Israelites. They were ready to be home in the promised land and after traveling for such a very long time. You see, after their initial conquest over the Canaanites, instead of advancing forward toward the promised land, due to obstacles outside of their control, their pathway was blocked and they needed to divert direction, go back into the desert, their favorite place, and take a different, much longer route into the promised land. They were so close, yet they were so far away. And so this in turn caused them to grow impatient and gripe against God and against Moses using their most infamous and favorite complaint. We see it repeated all throughout the book of Exodus. Look at verse 5. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Here it is. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? But then they go on. For there is no food and no water. So they say there's no food, but then they go and say, and we loathe this worthless food. So what's going on here? Well, as previously mentioned, God was faithful to provide the Israelites with all the sustenance needed for their pilgrimage. Yet they grew sick of eating what God provided. And they were ungrateful, even to the point of calling God's provision worthless. Yikes. And before we judge their response too quickly, let's do inventory of our own lives because I started thinking about this. Consider how often, i give you a really practical example here, consider how often we have gone into our own cabinets or refrigerators and started complaining that we have nothing to eat. How often have we been guilty of saying things like, I'm sick of eating the same thing all the time? Yep, you all know that. You all relate to that one. Church, the truth is, here it is. Ready for the hard truth? Our complaints are often founded not on a lack of God's provision, they're founded on a lack of gratitude for what he's provided. However, for the Israelites, the reason for their complaints, they went much deeper than just the food issue. In fact, Psalm 78 sheds some light on the reasons why the Israelites developed this spirit of complaint. And so perhaps it might shed some light in your life if you struggle with complaining as well. So here's some examples from Psalm 78. Number one, they failed in obedience to God. They failed in obedience. I'm going to have all these verses on the screen. Psalm 78.10 says, They did not keep God's covenants, but they refused to walk according to his law. You see, when my boys were growing up, we had to constantly remind them that their mouths were meant for eating food and nothing else. Well... They had to learn the hard way, because disobedience led them to learn this truth. One of my sons swallowed a dime, and he came to us in panic, shaking in panic, not knowing what to do. And so I assured him that everything was going to be okay, unless, of course, two nickels came out the other end, then we'd have a problem. (laughs) My other son panicked because he swallowed a Lego, and we had to induce vomiting on that one. But see, just like the Israelites, they needed to learn that disobedience is not only detrimental, but it leads to disappointment and dissatisfaction. And for the Israelites, they were dissatisfied with the Lord. Next, they failed in remembrance of God. Psalm 78, verse 11 says, They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Church, to my shame, I confess that if I had a dollar for every time I was encouraged by a movement of God on a Sunday morning, only to have a spirit of crankiness and complaint on a Monday, I'd be able to retire from ministry. The sad reality is we often forget fairly quickly how God has moved in our lives. And as a result, it creates this sinful attitude in our hearts. You see, despite God's miraculous provision, time and time again, the Israelites forgot who God is and what he's capable of, and it caused their hearts to be hardened toward his goodness. Next, they failed in keeping their word to God. Look at verse 36. It says, but they flattered him with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Church, when we proclaim with our mouths, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, but then in reality we actually turn back, it doesn't take long for our hearts to grow discontent because we're trying to serve two masters. It just doesn't work. Over and over, the Israelites claimed that they would follow God. However, when push came to shove, they turned away from him. As the old expression goes, talk is cheap. See, the Israelites, they used powerful words, but they didn't back them with powerful actions. And so when we fail to practice what we preach, it's only a matter of time before it influences our attitudes. Next, they failed in their faithfulness to God. Psalm seventy-eight thirty-seven it says, Their heart was not steadfast toward him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. Last week, my wife and I, Uh, uprooted parts of a lilac tree from my grandmother's house and replanted them in our backyard, hoping that the roots would connect. We're told that it would likely take some time because lilacs need to be babied, but up to this point, it doesn't look too hot. The leaves are pretty withered and the buds are dead, and um, our only hope is a miracle with these lilacs. But it made me think, you know, in the same way when the roots of our lives are disconnected from the Lord, it's only a matter of time before our souls begin to wither and dry up and waste away. And that's because that's what Jesus said, right? He said in John fifteen five, I am the vine and you are the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Church, the Israelites developed this posture of protest because they didn't remain faithfully connected to their source of life and power. And their fruit, I should say lack thereof, or maybe the bad fruit, it speaks for itself. Now, we could look at other examples from Psalm 78. They're similar examples, but I think you get the points. Complaining is an outward response to an inward problem of a heart that is hardened toward God. Let that sink in. Complaining is an outward response to an inward problem of a heart that is hardened toward God. That's where the Israelites were. Maybe that's where you are today, if you struggle with this. And coming to grips with this truth is the first step in getting past it. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 reminds us, says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another word for disputing is complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, instead of shining like bright lights, the Israelites were more like burnt candles. And due to their desperate condition, God was about to get their attention using some desperate measures. And this leads us to the second factor, the punishment for the Israelites, the punishment. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Any Indiana Jones fans in the room? All of them were good, right, except for the last one they made with the aliens in it. Lame. But anyway, I guess they're making a new one. should be cool, but I hope it's cool. But one of the minor subplots in the Indiana Jones franchise is his hatred for snakes. When he was a young explorer, Indiana Jones had a traumatic encounter when he fell into a crate of snakes on a train. And ever since then, he's been triggered by them, making famous the line, snakes, why does it have to be snakes? Well, a subplot in the ancient Jewish culture, uh, really in any culture, is a hatred for snakes. Very few people like snakes, and those that do are weirdos. That's why we go to the carnival, friends, right? You see, both the Israelites and the Egyptians had a great fear of snakes. Because to be bitten by a poisonous one meant a slow death with intense suffering. Well, in an act of punishment for their excessively sinful attitudes, God sent poisonous snakes to bite the people. Which, being in the wilderness, there were plenty of options to choose from. All types of venomous snakes hid in the sand and rock beds and other places to sneak up on their prey. And so whether it was a special snake that God sent for this moment, like a, like a God miraculous snake deal, or whether it was just one of the locals, what we do know for sure is these snakes packed a punch. They were fiery, and it caused a burn. And now you might be thinking at this point, man, that, that punishment seems a little extreme. You know, these poisonous snakes be, biting all of God's people and causing them Some of them even died. But at the end of the day, here it is. Who are we to question God, right? But not only that, it shows how seriously God takes sin. It's a picture of how seriously God takes sin. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Let's not forget the Israelites. For 40 years, the Israelites mocked God with their on-again, off-again faith. For 40 years, they grumbled and complained when things didn't go their way. They just got done calling God's provision worthless. And so God, listen, God, in his love for his people, sent those snakes. In his love. And I say in his love, that doesn't seem very loving, In his love. I say in his love because scripture teaches that God disciplines those that he loves. And and he also disciplines those that he loves for very good reason. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see... God loves us and he wants to have this intimate relationship with his children, but it's our sin that separates us from him. And since God is holy and he cannot simply ignore or excuse or tolerate unrepentant sinful behavior, especially among his children, sometimes God, just like a good father, will take drastic measures to get our attention and draw us back to himself. And that's exactly what he did with the Israelites, he sent those snakes. This leads us to the third factor. It's the prayer for the Israelites. Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Church, in his song, Sometimes by Step, the late Rich Mullins wrote lyrics that always resonated with me. They read this, and on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb could be so steep, I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. The Israelites faltered in their steps many, many times, but they never got beyond God's reach. Despite their many mistakes, the Israelites recognized that they had sinned against the Lord, which is better than the Israelites from 40 years ago, who couldn't even recognize that. They recognized, oh wow. We sinned, and we need forgiveness. And so they asked Moses to intercede in God, and ask God for forgiveness on their behalf. 1 John, uh, chapter one, verses eight and nine says, "If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness." Church, isn't it amazing that forgiveness for sin is always only one prayer away? Isn't that amazing? We often take that for granted. You know, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. I understand that. But but as believers, as God's children, we're going to sin against him. And that's going to hurt our relationship with him. But, but we are always just one prayer away from having complete and total forgiveness and having a, a right relationship with God, kind of a, a, a restored relationship with him. Perhaps you're here this morning carrying an unrepentant sin. Perhaps you're feeling guilty for something you did this past weekend or this past week or this past month. Perhaps you've been carrying the weight of a sin you committed in your youth or many years ago. If that's you, I want you to remember that even though you may falter and you have faltered in your steps, you are never, ever beyond God's reach. And you can confess And repent of your sins even right now. I give you permission to tune me out only for 30 seconds or so. Pray to God. Confess your sins. Come back in. But in all seriousness, you can get right with God right now by just confessing it to him. And he will forgive you. How about it? Amen? Now, I don't want to skim past the fact that it was Moses who prayed on behalf of God's people. Because church, I think this is a Stunning example of the power of intercessory prayer. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Perhaps this morning, the sin that you're struggling with is not your own, but it's the sin of somebody else in your life whom you love. Maybe a spouse sinned against you. Maybe your child has walked away from the Lord. Maybe you have friends or coworkers who are living in rebellion against God and his ways. Church, if you have a loved one whose actions are breaking your heart today, Scripture reminds us to never stop interceding. Just stand the gap between their sinful behavior and their Savior and pray. I love what James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Pastor Jim Cymbala. And he had a daughter that walked away from the Lord. He tells this story in several of his books, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire is his most popular book, and and how the Lord brought her back was literally nothing short of miraculous. But he said this, I have learned as never before that persistent calling upon the Lord breaks through every stronghold of the devil. For nothing is impossible with God. For Christians in these troubled times, there is simply no other way. So, church, I just want to encourage you that a spiritual breakthrough in the life of someone you love just might be, just might be, one prayer away. One prayer away could change it all. So, let me encourage you to never stop interceding on their behalf. Moses called upon the Lord to save the Israelites from the poison that was slowly killing them. And the Lord was faithful to answer in the most unusual way. And this leads us to the fourth factor the provision for the Israelites. Look at verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, he set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Now earlier I quoted Charles Spurgeon. Okay, I want to give you a little background about Spurgeon. He's often called the prince of preachers. He just had a way with words. He was saved as a young boy. You see, God had been working in his heart and he grew increasingly restless. And so one day he went to a small primitive Methodist church during a snowstorm. And not many people were in attendance that day on account of the bad weather, including the pastor who couldn't make it in. And so a layman was asked to fill the pulpit and he did the best he could, even though he was uneducated and he couldn't really pronounce words properly. And so the text that he chose was Isaiah 45, 22, which reads... Look unto me, and and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And so the lay preacher began to preach very simply, but he hammered his points home. He said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. He said, now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just, look. And he preached as long as he could, like a good pastor, preached as long as he could, And then he noticed Spurgeon sitting in the balcony to his right. And he turned to him and he fixed his eyes on the young boy and he said, Young man, you look very miserable. And you'll always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon did just that. He looked to Jesus, he got saved, and he became one of the greatest preachers and evangelists of all time. Now, at first glance, it seems daring and even a bit foolish for Moses to tell the Israelites to simply look at a bronze serpent on a pole and be healed. But that is isn't until you recognize the potent symbolism behind this unusual method of salvation. You see, the Israelites needed to recognize that there was no human remedy for their predicament. That no matter how hard they tried, they could not save themselves. If they wanted salvation, it could only come through a radical act of faith. And so by looking up at the bronze serpent, they they weren't putting their hope in the bronze serpent, but the Israelites were acknowledging that only God can cure them of their calamity. Listen, don't miss this. The same is true with us today, church. Same exact thing true for us today. You see, just like a serpent's bite, sin is poisonous. One commentator noted, he said, it is a deadly venom within us, not an external, basically harmless blemish that can be cured by human remedies. Unless a cure beyond our own ability is found, we are destined to perish miserably and forever. Any genuine care must come from God, and it must deal with the sin problem radically. Now, here's the deal. Why did I choose this text today? There's, there's a number of texts that, that I could have gone with, but why did I choose this text? Well, this one holds some significant importance. Why? Because Jesus talked about it. And though all scripture is, is inspired by God and capable for training and rebuke and correction and righteousness and all that, whole, whole stuff, all scripture is good, but when Jesus quotes it, I mean, it's like, we should pay attention. And Jesus said, in one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, John chapter 3, he said this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Don't miss this, because this is it. This is kind of the, this is what you need to walk away with, if nothing else. The cross is the remedy the world's sin problem. When people look to Jesus, when they look to the person and work of Jesus, when they in faith believe that 2,000 years ago God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, took the punishment for our sin upon himself, and three days later he rose again, Jesus said that they will be saved from the poison of sin, and they will be secured with the promise of eternal life. Now just like looking at a bronze serpent, This act of faith may seem awfully foolish to some, and it does, but it will still save those who act and look nonetheless. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. There are people out in the world right now that think we are nuts to be meeting here on Memorial Day weekend. There's hot dogs to be had. And they're in church. But we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. So all this to say, if you're here today, having never looked to Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, then as it stands right now, listen, this is the warning. The venom of sin is slowly killing you. It's destroying you from the inside out, and it's going to lead you to eternal death. But the good news is that you can pass from death to life, from hurt to healing, from poison to promise even right now by looking up. By looking up. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me though he die yet he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Church, I I don't need to remind you. Actually, I probably do need to to remind you because we all need to be reminded of this truth. Your answer to that question is the most important answer to any question you could ever answer, ever. Because your answer can literally mean life or death. It's like looking up at the bronze snake. It literally means life or death. To believe in Jesus is to admit that you're a sinner. To repent, which means to change your mind about who Jesus is and about your sin and to trust in him and him alone for your eternal life. It's like just like the Israelites, you like but it seems too easy. No, listen. It's like the bronze serpent. It's kind of foolish if you think about it, but it's it's how we get saved. It's it's like you're in sin and you feel like I got to heap up my good deeds and work and look better in the eyes of God and God says, "No, you look to Jesus." So, so imagine that, that Israelite who's suffering the poison of, of the venom is is just consuming him. And Moses says, look over here, and you'll be saved. That's it, just look? Yeah, look. And you're saved. That is the type of faith that the Lord wants you to have in him. No, stop looking yourself. But God, I gotta clean myself up. I can't look at you. Yeah, I gotta clean up. No, you don't. It's faith in me. Look and live. Salvation is by grace through faith. It always has been. It always will be. It's a radical act of faith, foolish to some, saves those who are perishing. Do you believe this? And this brings us back to today's truth. The treatment for sin comes only by trusting the Savior. And so straight up, if if you'd like to look to Christ for salvation this morning, If you want to be secure in knowing that you are saved and that that poison of sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, if that's you, then you could do so right now, just by looking. But I want to lead you there. I'll help even lead you there. You could could just pray to the Lord in the quietness of your seat something like this. You say, God, your word says that the poison of sin has separated me from you, and I believe it. And your word teaches that apart from a Savior, I'm destined to spend eternity in hell, and I believe it. However, your word also says that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die for me on a cross, and three days later, you rose again. And that's whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, and I believe that too. So Lord, beginning today, I look to you and you alone for eternal life. Thank you for this free gift, and help me from this day forward to follow you and do your will, in Jesus' name. Amen. And friend, if you prayed, This prayer, and you meant it, the Bible teaches, listen, the Bible teaches at this very moment you have been saved from the poison of sin and from the penalty of your sin, and that you will go to heaven when you die because you looked up. You are now a child of God. In church, I don't know if anybody got saved or not, but can we just praise God for that amazing truth? Come on. Let's really praise him this morning. because. Where would we be without the cross? Where would we be? It'd be, it'd be game over. We would, I mean, oh, let us never forget, Lord, the cross of Christ. And so if you look to Christ for the first time today, let me just tell you something. The next step is don't hide it. Don't hold it in a bottle and just kind of walk out of here all schemish. Let somebody know about it. Whether it's the person that brought you, you can come talk to me after the service. Whatever members of the prayer team are here this morning, they'll be up here if you want to meet with them and pray with them. Just let somebody know. Mark it on your Connect card. But just let us know why. Because we want to be praying for you, celebrating with you, and helping you get set up in your next steps in your walk with Jesus. That's all. We just want to set you up for success. Does that sound like a plan? Now, as I close, and this isn't one of those, oh, here we go. He says, in conclusion, it's going to be another 20 minutes. 19 more minutes, all right, so relax. But as I close, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this one more important fact about the bronze serpent, just kind of a little tiny, not super connected to what we talked about today, but important nonetheless. Centuries after this miraculous encounter, God's people took what was meant to be a symbol of God's work, and they turned it into an idol of worship. Like the Israelites, you know, his people, once again, messed up. And it compelled King Hezekiah, who was a righteous king, to destroy it. Second Kings 18.4 says, He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel made offerings to it. And I believe this is an important point to mention because it can be very easy for us to fall into the same pattern. Listen, we live in an area that values religious symbols and statues and shrines, all of which are meant to remind us of God's work. But unless we're careful, these tangible reminders of God's work can easily become superstitious idols of worship. I lived that life when I was younger. I know. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature who, uh, rather than the creator who was blessed forever. And so church, my final exhortation is this and I'm done. Whenever you find yourself in need of salvation or deliverance or forgiveness of sins, let me remind you that it could only be found in the person and work of Jesus. Be sure that your prayers and your petitions and your acts of worship are directed to him and him alone. Amen? Praise team, come on forward, let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at such a fascinating passage of scripture today. And Lord, I can only hope and believe your word when it says that your word does not return void. And so, God, I pray that you, you would use your word even right now or even in the coming days, God. It could be Tuesday and we just get smacked with something that, that was presented from your word today. But Lord, we pray that you would use the power of your word and your Holy Spirit to convict our hearts to draw us closer to you. And Lord, my most desperate prayer, if there's anyone here that does does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would place their faith in Christ today. Don't let them leave here without acknowledging and looking to you. And God, I pray if there are people, and there are, God, we all have loved ones in our lives, friends, families, families, co-workers, whoever, that we need to intercede for them. Lord, there are some families here that need to see a miracle in the life of someone that they love. God, may you bring them that miracle, even today, because you are able. And all God's people said,